0: That was kind of our whole idea going into this, I guess. It's like, yeah, what's the worst that could happen? Like, it doesn't work. It it doesn't happen for us. And then we're in the same position that we were. Like, we can yeah. really be no more humiliated than we have been already. <laughs> Let's give it a shot. Mm.
1: That is M. Castle, co-owner and editor at Racket, and I'm Joel Lehman. Welcome to Connection Request. If you've seen headlines about the media industry this year, chances are none of them have been very positive. According to Axios, we've already hit a record number of media job cuts in 2023 at more than 17,000 as of June 1st. And with digital media darlings like BuzzFeed News closing and Vice Media filing for bankruptcy. But amidst that very bleak outlook, there are smaller, more niche outlets that are not only finding their way but succeeding. Well, that's why I wanted to sit down with M. Castle, a co owner and editor at Racket and the final editor in chief of its predecessor, City Pages, a beloved alt weekly newspaper right here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. We talked through M.'s career that brought her to Minneapolis and chat about that fateful day in 2020 when the Star Tribune decided to fold City Pages entirely. We also discuss how M and a few colleagues decided to start a publication from scratch and nearly two years in, how it's going and what really makes for a racket story. Along the way, we chat about tazande, Spam, rotisserie chickens, and an anonymous commenter named Taco Mike, and why it's important to listen to those pushes from the universe every now and then. Stick with us until the rapid fire where I grill M on some of her favorite food and beverage spots in the Twin Cities right now. I also forced her to choose between Minnesota icons, Bob Dylan and Prince. We go deep on both media and Minnesota, but I think there's a lot to be learned for all of us from the way she's approached her career. Okay, here's my conversation with M. Castle. M. Castle, welcome to Connection Request. Thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited
1: course me too um so let's get things started will you tell us a little bit about yourself and what
0: you do absolutely happy to um i guess going way back uh, i grew up in a suburb of philadelphia um small town called percosy i don't know that anyone has ever heard of it who's not from there um i uh I was interested in journalism kind of from a young age. Um, We were definitely like a household that gets the newspaper every Sunday and like shared and traded off pieces of it among one another. Um, I don't know how common that is at all anymore, but it was pretty common, I think, when I was, you know, (laughs) 10 years old. Yeah. (laughs) People still did that. Um, And so I also knew from a pretty young age that like that was something that I was interested in, that I liked. I was very bookish child uh I liked reading I liked um you know the written word really spoke to me from the time I was very young and um you know as I was getting older as I was in high school we didn't have a really robust student paper or anything um Hmm. so I was kind of feeling it out as I went whether a career in journalism might be something that I wanted um I felt like it was a safer alternative to like having an English degree. Um, And it's kind of hilarious looking back. I don't know that a, that a journalism degree is any more marketable than an English degree at this point, but uh, at the time it seemed like it was. Um, And also I like my favorite thing about journalism to this day is just like being able to ask people questions. I was like a very, curious know-it-all kind of child and there's like nothing more gratifying than knowing that you can just email someone or call them up and they have to answer you.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so I, uh, I went to school, journalism school at Northeastern, um, in Boston and, um, graduated with a degree, um, in a little under four years. It's a funny school. It does like this co-op program where you, um, take breaks like six month periods where you're not in class and you work in your chosen field ideally um so i did that for a bit and um and yeah that's what kind of like started everything i guess
1: yeah okay so let's um let's then go back to like after uh, journalism school so uh tell us about like those first few years and i guess the pre-city pages days as we'll call
0: them for sure now. Uh, well, Northeastern is in Boston, which is fun for a lot of reasons. I think Boston's a really cool city. Uh, I liked living there during the time that I lived there. Um, but it also has this kind of, like, it's a double-edged sword of, like, there are a ton of college students there, which mm-hmm. means that when you graduate, you graduate at the same time as a ton of other <laughs> people with journalism degrees. Uh, so you find yourself in a very crowded media market. Um and that can be a real challenge if you don't already have a foot in the door somewhere or know someone um, or just have the time and financial ability to do unpaid internships. Even with the work experience from Northeastern, it it didn't feel like I was getting calls back. I wasn't getting interviews. It just wasn't working. Um, so for a short period of time, I went to work for a company that does content marketing. Hmm. Um, that was like, I don't know, a compromise that I made. I was like, well, I'll be writing. Um, I'll have a steady job, which was very important. It's an expensive city as well. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and it just seemed like, you know, this will be great, um, basic experience. This will be like a boot camp. I'll be doing lots of writing about lots of different types of things. Um, what's the downside? Um, and the downside was that you're writing like Five thousand words a day about software as a service um, yes. <laughs> for various b2b clients um it's not fun i didn't enjoy it um and so i did like for the first time in my life i like quit a job with no backup plan i was like i'm just gonna i can't keep doing this it's sucking yeah. my world to live yeah um so i ended up going back to work in a bookstore I had worked part-time at a bookstore slash cafe um, when I was in school and they were looking for a full-time bookseller and I was just like you know what this seems like a sign they need someone full-time I need something full-time I will uh I'll end up back at the bookstore um which definitely felt like a step backwards at the time like I was I was not sure if this was really the right idea or if I was being kind of a baby. Um, I will say that when I quit the content marketing job, my manager thanked me for quitting and not just ghosting, because I guess that was very common. So I felt a little validated. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, it um, seems like you were, uh, you were listening to yourself, which it, to me, what you can validate, but it seems like a theme you did throughout your career, but like, you were just like, you know, you didn't want to be there and, and you just did it. And I guess sort of at the time that, that felt like the best decision, but Uh, like, you know, months into making that, did it still feel right? And were you freelancing on the side?
0: Yes. That was the really great thing about sort of taking a step back was like, I, I wasn't burnt out from writing tons and tons of words, um, for other clients. I Mm. was able to get out of here. Sorry. It's my cat. I was able to, uh, take the time that I needed to, like, you know, work from eight to four and then have an evening where I didn't feel so burnt out and tired. Yeah, I could do some freelancing. So I did some stuff, you know, for very, you know, small publications, like a magazine for drummers and, um, you know, some stuff for the online, like youthful component of the Boston Globes, (laughs) Boston.com vertical. Um, And that actually started to feel Maybe, like, this was progress. Like, okay, this step backwards was maybe not a step backwards. Maybe being able to take time to write the things that you want to write is actually, if not a step forward, at least a sideways step.
1: (laughs) Totally. Totally. And so uh, eventually, I imagine that lands you at Scout. Is that the name? It does. Yes.
0: Uh, I had a coworker at the bookstore um, named Emily Hopkins, who this is just like one of those random things that happens in life. But um, they were also a recent college grad with a journalism degree who wasn't finding work in like a meaningful way in journalism. Hmm. So they um, were the events manager at the bookstore. I was the head bookseller. We became very close And they got a call from a friend about this position opening up at these local magazines called Scout. Um, They were like hyper local magazines, one in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and one in Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, But they wanted ideally two people um, Hmm. working kind of part time to fill these roles. So again, by like sheer happenstance, this like sidestep slash backstep ended up being a thing that propelled me forward. Through Emily yeah. and through that bookstore job, I got the connection that gave me my first quote-unquote real journalism job, um, Yeah, which was great.
1: And you were there for a while, right? What was that experience like? And as so you became more part of the place. Was that was that good? Were you writing the things you were wanting to write? How was it?
0: It was definitely a enlightening experience. <laughs> as anyone who has worked, I think in like Alternative media and specifically like hyper local media will tell you it's like there are a lot of the issues there that are true elsewhere in the industry. Like you're going to work long hours and the pay is not going to be incredible. Um, but the payoff is that you're writing stories about everything. You're doing all kinds of stuff. Like we were our own editors, photographers, yeah. videographers sometimes like it tr- you learn a lot um, and it feels better than doing something that's like you know, writing about, again, software as a service or something like that, where it's like, this is not, this has no long term value for me. This is going to go on a web page and then disappear. And no one will ever see it again. (laughs) It felt like this is a tangible thing. I'm writing and editing a real magazine that goes out to people's homes, that they see that they experience and that they have a really strong relationship with. So that felt really good. Like, it was challenging and stressful in the ways that those jobs are mm. um but i think you know unfortunately you shouldn't probably be in media if you don't want it to be a little challenging and stressful
1: yeah absolutely okay and then eventually 2017 tell me if i'm skipping too far forward no that's perfect something brings you to minneapolis and to <laughs> a beloved alt weekly here city pages how did that happen
0: Absolutely. That, too, was a really funny, almost circumstantial, like, happenstance kind of serendipity. Um, I had another friend, uh, Gerard Fagerberg, who if you're a reader of City Pages or of Racket, where I am now, um, you might recognize his name. He was a longtime beer writer uh, who also wrote about a lot of other stuff for those publications. Um, And he had moved from Boston to Minneapolis a few years earlier mm. um had been doing some writing for city pages and really loved the city was like a very big advocate for Minneapolis yeah um he also knew that i had kind of become disheartened with boston again all these things of like expensive city yeah hustle uh tiny little apartment working a lot of hours and it doesn't feel like you're maybe getting anywhere um and he let me know that city pages had a food and drink editor position opening up which I was not a food and drink writer at the time. I think I said something to him to the effect of, like, I eat chips for dinner. I don't know if I'm qualified for this. <laughs> um, and I actually, the, the first time around, I didn't apply for the job. Um, You know, he was kind of like, here's the link. I think you should do it. I think you would love it here. I feel like this is a good fit for you. Yeah. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, like Minneapolis is a little far away. <laughs> and, totally. You know and, the I, country. and I'm not, you know, super. <laughs> and I'm not super experienced with the realm of food and drink. So uh, it just it seemed like a little much. But yeah. again, and just like you get these weird pushes from the universe sometimes and the first person that they had hired for the food writer job ended up falling through. Like they had a a personal life event or something where they were not going to be able to take the job. Mm. And that's when Gerard reached out again and was like, hey, I just want to tell you, I know you didn't apply the first time around. This first person fell through. I really, really think that you should consider applying for this job. And that was the push it took I was like okay it feels like maybe I'm maybe I should apply for this job maybe yeah <laughs> maybe I'm getting some signs here that I really should and I did yeah. and, you know a few months later I was flying out to Minneapolis to meet the staff and see if it would be a good fit um, my introduction to the state of Minnesota was going to the Minnesota State Fair so that was <laughs> yeah it was but that
1: was a wild introduction
0: <laughs> truly like you're gonna get it all at once I We'll never forget the feeling I felt the first time I saw the all you can drink milk stand. I was like, "All right."
1: Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> with a bucket of cookies in your arm as well. Yes. <laughs>
0: um,
1: what? And so, I mean, that feels like a real universe moment of like you turned it down the first time, and the second time, it's like, "No, you should really do this," even though you only eat chips for dinner. When you, <laughs> when, when it happened and it all came through, and you, and you came, like, did it? Did it feel like a big? jump a big risk a big scary thing or was it just like yeah we'll just like see what happens i don't know like <laughs> and and uh readers will will note you've now been here ever since right so you've you've, yes. you've built a both a career and i presume a life here um
0: yeah.
1: yeah how's how's that been and how did it feel at that time
0: um it was kind of both things at the same time like on one hand i was scared and nervous and excited and all of those things like i hadn't you know i'd lived in pennsylvania and i'd lived in massachusetts and all of my friends were on the east coast and Mm. there's just the general uncertainty anytime you start a new job that's kind of like will this be the right choice will i feel confident will i be good at it and then you compound all of those anxieties with like and also you're gonna move to the midwest and see how you like that (laughs) Um, Totally. so there was a lot of you know fear anxiety um but definitely also excitement uh kind of fluttering around inside and you know as you mentioned i'm still here now uh the midwest absolutely got me if the minneapolis like tourism board needs any tips i'm your girl (laughs) for sure (laughs) very quickly felt very at home um I think, like, the City Pages staff was incredible. That was a really wonderful group of people to fall in with. Yeah. I I experienced a bit of the sort of, you know, famous Midwestern standoffishness, or sort of specifically the Minnesota nice that you mm. hear about. But I also think, you know, there's a lot of people here who are very open to connections and meeting new people and making new friends. And, yeah. you know, I've, I've said this before, but I feel like if you just force your friendship on people, just... Uh, invite yourself to their things and don't just wait to be invited. You'll find that yeah. Minnesotans are a kind and sweet people.
1: <laughs> That's a good tip. That's really interesting. Um, how, yeah. How was your time there? I mean, you, at least from your resume experience, like a really interesting rocket fueled rise. I mean, you, uh, had a couple of different gigs and then ended up being the editor in chief. How, how was your time there? And in terms of career progression, at least from the outside, it seems like a place that offered some of that.
0: Yeah, it absolutely was. That was one of the things that I was honestly a little concerned about, in addition to just the move and taking the job the first time I was like, well, if I'm the food and drink editor, like there's not a lot. There's not a lot else I can do from there. Right. I was like, I'll yeah. be a section editor surely I won't be the managing editor at any point (laughs) like looking at it as an outsider I was like this is probably where I'll be for a long time and that's okay Um, and I was at City Pages for a long time but yeah within I think two years of my being there our managing editor left for a role with the Star Tribune Um, I ended up interviewing for and got her old position Um, all of this was very unexpected and like just again a thing of like right place right time Um, yeah yeah and uh and then yeah within another year our editor-in-chief had left and um that role i was really uncertain about taking i was like well it's uh that's that's a lot of responsibility that's the big one yeah that's (laughs) that's like its own thing but I did end up applying for and getting that role as well, uh, which, you know, I held until the pandemic shut the paper down. So first and last uh, woman editor in chief at CP. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get
1: to that. How was it going from being a writer and a reporter to managing and leading people? How did you like that aspect of the job?
0: There were things that I liked about it. Um, Certainly when I was managing editor, part of what I liked is that I was still writing. Um, I was contributing to the website. I was occasionally writing stuff for the paper. Um, There were managerial duties that were my own that involved writing from, you know, just a day-to-day basis. So that was really valuable. I will say, like, I personally prefer the actual writing and editing that goes into it unless the like bureaucratic stuff and the budget management and the people management even is its own thing where it's, it's maybe not, I would, what I would say is like my favorite part of the job. Um, It's something that you could do, but I, I like definitely looking back and like, oh man, I kind of loved it when I was just in the trenches, like writing blog posts all the time and doing a weekly story as opposed to the kind of big picture stuff that can feel a little bit harder to just wrap your head around or grasp.
1: That makes that makes sense.
0: Um, I noticed your Instagram
1: bio says you have highly personal and easily misunderstood goals. Um, Care to shed any light on what that means and or what some of them are? I would
0: love to. Um the quote comes from a song by the band Self Defense Family who I really like if anyone okay. never heard of them they're wonderful. Um and I've always just very much resonated with that line because I think I think it's like it's very personal. Um I think part of what I really love about it is that it it means like you can have goals that are your own mm. that you don't have to like be plastering the world with like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and whatever else, like your goals can be deeply personal to you and they can, Mm -hmm. and they can be things that aren't necessarily like the traditional goals that you might think of as like, you know, uh, a steady job, like good, good career, lots of money, big house, you know, all of these things. Um, Like, I think some of my personal and misunderstood goals are like you know I want to live a life and work in a career that feels fulfilling whether or not that is the thing that makes me the most money yeah whether or not that's even a thing that like has a nice retirement account at the end of it like yeah I think I think some of the things that in that I enjoy most about this life are the things that make it worth living now and not things that you are putting off towards some like unpromised future yeah um so I've, i try to live that way with my career with my relationships you know i would say like having strong friendships and like really robust social networks like those are goals uh of mine mm. that i think also are like you know maybe not things that we necessarily think of when we think about long-term goals but like for me those things are deeply important
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense um Let's go to the day that you found out city pages was shutting down uh, um, it was during a pandemic. It was in mm-hmm. 2020. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yep. And that's, for I think October for November. loads
1: of reasons that you, you can get into or not, uh, <laughs> you found out that this place that you had moved across the country <laughs> for no. and built a career at and became the editor in chief of was shutting down. Tell me about, that day and, Mm -hmm. and then the next few weeks.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was horrible at the time. Like, so I'm sure anyone who's like a manager or has managed people before knows how strongly you feel about the people that you're managing. Like those, that is your team. Those are your people. You really, really want to do right by them and you really want them to succeed and have their best life. On top of that, with City Pages, we were all so close personally, like as friends. We spent time together outside of the paper going to trivia nights and whatever else. Like it was a very close group of people. And so to hear not only that your team is disbanding, that you're all losing your jobs. We're talking about like your, you know, your acquaintances, friends and colleagues Yeah. You're also seeing the end of an era in terms of a publication that meant something to the whole Twin Cities. So it's like it's it's just so sad on such a variety of levels. I every time there are layoffs in media and it feels like we hear about them constantly anymore, I just it takes me right back there to, you know, like who's oh gosh, we're all losing our jobs today. Like there's no feeling like it. Nothing prepares you. You know, I'm I think the vast majority of people who go through layoffs like this have a similar experience where like you get a surprise meeting invitation. That's like an all hands on deck and it was the video chat era and you all log into the video chat. And then all of a sudden by the end of the call, you find out that you're all no longer employed there. Um, It was really, really hard. I had never experienced anything quite like it. I don't think, anyone on the team had ever experienced anything quite like it. It's just, yeah. it's awful to navigate. <laughs> and yeah. It, ugh, it feels like an indictment of the work that you've done. Mm. It feels like, you know, what if we had just tried harder? What if we had, I don't know, like, you know, there's nothing any one person on that team could have done. It was yeah. a really, really hard time. And the decision that the Star should Be In, which own city pages made was to shut down the paper. Um we, we weren't able to do anything about it. Um, I will say that in the coming weeks, you know, well, almost right away. The day that we got the news, there was a kind of idea of like, well, what if we did our own thing? You know, what mm. if we on the day. Yeah. Like, yeah, as soon as, day yeah. It, it, like nothing came of it for some time. But sure. even on the day, there was a lot of, you know, speculation from the staff of like, well, you know okay, I don't want to go work for the Star Tribune and I don't want to go work for the Pioneer Press. We're not really cut out for that kind of daily grind journalism stuff anymore. We want to do weird stuff and we want to do fun stuff and we really want to be chaotic and have a strong voice and all of this. Um, So even on that first day, there was kind of like, well, what if we just did our own thing? Hmm. Um, And nothing came of that for some time, I think. think we had to kind of sit back and like lick our wounds for a while and yeah you know it's like a big life moment like those are times where you sit back and you think about like okay like what do I really want like you know speaking for myself like do I really want to be in Minnesota like do I really want to be in media anymore like these are the times to ask those questions um and for myself and for a handful of my colleagues the answer was both like yes we do want to be in media still and also yes we do want to try and do something not entirely unlike city pages so Mm. I think it was December of 2020 that I sent an email to the whole staff and I just said hey you know I know some of you have moved on already um I know you know it probably won't be practical for others but I'm just curious like does anyone still want to explore this idea of like what if we started our own worker owned media company does that interest yeah. anyone and yeah. uh, a few people were interested <laughs>
1: <sighs> yeah and that i mean so that uh, let's see you, you had that idea or sent that email in december and then you launched the following august yeah if i have my timeline yeah. right yeah um yeah what what did that time period feel like you got a couple of people who said yeah this sounds good uh, at some point, I know you call up the folks at Defector who mm-hmm. had done something similar. So walk me through from the day you send that email, a couple of people say yes, and then less than a year later you launch.
0: Yeah, it was uh, a pretty condensed timeline. Um, we one of our very earliest steps was emailing the folks at Defector because it just what we wanted to do both spiritually and on like a practical like how will this be built level seemed very much in line with what they had done when Deadspin shut down and a bunch of really talented writers with a lot to offer said great no problem actually I guess Defector didn't you know Deadspin rather didn't shut down yeah it's all very in the media weeds but in any case when they all left Deadspin and they went to the you know find create Defector um it seemed like there was an opportunity there for us to ask them some questions. And so we did. And, you know, they had a lot of great advice, kind of the nuts and bolts stuff of how they did it. And I think the thing that told us like we should just do this is like Tom Lay, who's the editor-in-chief over there, sort of followed up with uh, my colleague Jay Buller and I after our conversation and said, you know, I was thinking more about your situation and I just, I really think there's no downside. I really think you guys should do it. Like it's... Mm. I he's like you know what's what's the worst that could happen and that was kind of our whole idea going into this I guess it's like yeah what's the worst that could happen like it doesn't work it it doesn't happen for us and then we're in the same position that we were like we could really be no more humiliated than we have been already let's give it a shot (laughs) um so, yeah, we connected with the folks at Ali Lead, who were the people who built Defectors website. They've done a lot of really cool startup journalism projects for other um, you know papers around the country. Um, and basically, over the course of around eight months, we came up with the name, the logo, the ethos, the website. Um, and yeah, by that August, we were publishing content. <laughs>
1: yeah that's pretty amazing and i just think like yeah like not every journalist or person in the media profession is like destined to also be a startup founder Mm -hmm. which you are and so i think the (laughs) fact that you like took a really bad thing and turned it into a really cool thing is from where i sit pretty amazing um yeah yeah of course like yeah how did it how did it feel then i guess like hitting uh go on the website on august 2nd i believe and the only reason i remember that is because that's my wedding anniversary (laughs)
0: uh
1: and then a couple weeks later publishing the first article like were you like oh my god i hope this works were you terrified were you like we got this we've been publishing forever (laughs) like what what did that feel like to all of a sudden ask a bunch of people for money and eyeballs
0: um definitely the thing that we were telling ourselves over and over and, uh, you know, just sort of saying like a mantra was like, we've got this, we've done this before, we know what we're doing, this will be fine. But the um, sort of subconscious feeling for sure was like, wow, I wonder if this will work. It could be a huge flop. Yeah. No one might subscribe. People might actually think this is stupid. Yeah. It's <laughs> there a scary was, thing, like, right?
1: to like yeah, build, build sure. a new brand, build a new company. Like, even though you had the backing of a really passionate, like audience that theoretically you yes. could convert to mix a few different um, turns of phrase, like, yeah, still it's like a, that's a hard thing to do. Put yourself totally. There.
0: And, you know, with the way that we run racket, it's mostly reader funded. It's like 90% reader funded, which is such an inversion of the alt weekly model and of the yeah. model that we had at city pages. Like, we were really going out on a limb saying like, okay, people liked this when it was a free paper that they could pick up at the bar while they were like waiting for a friend. Yeah, Will they find enough value in it that they chip in, you know, five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month to read it in an online format? Like we really didn't know. Even yeah. seeing the success of Defector and other, you know, kind of reader supported journalism startups, you don't know how it's going to translate for your mm publication and specifically for like your media market like maybe it works in new york maybe it works wherever else but will it work in minneapolis and st paul tough to say unless you just try (laughs) yeah yeah um so actually we should
1: we should for anyone listening to this uh or watching who has never heard of racket and maybe doesn't know anything about alt weeklies because that like not everybody does can you give us the pitch for racket what what is it that y'all do and uh and maybe a little bit about alt weeklies too in general
0: absolutely yeah um so the alt weekly ethos is like traditionally speaking they are a literal alternative to like the daily paper in your community so you know you might get one line from the sort of traditional news outlet and then from the alt weekly you're gonna get the take that's Maybe a little bit brasher, maybe a little bit more um, confrontational, um, and and doing stories that you don't see reported in the big dailies. I think that's yeah. really where alternative weeklies thrive the most. the uh, The phrase that you often hear associated with them is that they should uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I think that's a very of succinct way of putting um, the the whole kind of feeling behind it um, so when we started racket we knew that we wanted that alternative ethos to kind of sink into everything that we did um, it was not going to be a print publication and it was going to be a daily blog um but it was going to be infused ideally with those alternative ideas um and it was kind of a funny thing in explaining it to like specifically the people who are helping us with our branding early on. Like they would be like, well, what is like, what's the tone? And we'd be like, well, it's, it's like simultaneously very serious and like deeply researched and mm. really thoughtful and careful, but it's also really funny. And there's like an emphasis on the writing being clever and the stories being weird and being things you wouldn't see elsewhere. Like, it does feel like it's really kind of a a thing of dichotomies Mm. (laughs) when you get down to it. Yeah. Um, but the, the end of the day, what we want to be doing, what alternative papers do very well. And what I hope we continue to do well at racket is to be worth reading, to be something that is engaging, that is fun, that is interesting, that is thought provoking, eye opening, all of those cliches. (laughs) Um, just the stuff that you're not necessarily seeing elsewhere. Um, yeah. When we talk to people about what makes a good racket story, the simplest way we can say it is like something that you're not going to read elsewhere in the local news universe. That's, that's what we want to be bringing to the table. And, uh, and what I hope we are bringing to the table.
1: Yeah. Well, at least, uh, you know, it took me this long to get a disclosure. I am a subscriber and a reader. And at least for this <laughs> subscriber and reader, you're definitely doing that. Um <laughs> what are some of the favorite uh pieces y'all have done in the first almost two years now i've got my own i think i think my hands down favorite that i've read is probably the tezande piece just because it's like the perfect intersection of like this internet character from a long time ago that i and no one i assume no offense to him have thought about in a very long time Uh, and then we get the local angle but what are what are some of your favorites
0: Yeah, I will just add that that Tay one was wild. Like, we did not anticipate that his answers were going to be so thoughtful and, like, really interesting and, like, just (laughs) totally unexpected.
1: (laughs) I still think about it all the time.
0: I know. (laughs) Um, I think some of my favorites, well, the story, I'll let you in on a little, like, analytics data here. Sure. The most popular, the most read racket story of all time is still when we did our ranking of the local grocery store rotisserie chickens.
1: Oh, my God. That's amazing.
0: That re- remains unseated at the top of the charts. So good. <laughs> Which, again, yeah, felt like a very specific racket story. Yeah. yeah. Um, some of the stuff that I've been really proud of is even within the last couple of months is like. Um, Last month, I I took a ride with a bike bus in Minneapolis, which is, like, a a parent-led group of students on bicycles who go to their elementary school in, like, a big group that's almost, like, critical mass or, like, one of those, like, street takeover kind of ideas, but it's just, like, 10-year-olds on their bicycles with their parents. Uh, That kind of stuff was really fun to report because it's, like, at the intersection of a lot of things that we really care about, which is, like... Uh, you know like transportation equality and like cyclist rights and also just like it's a cool story about kids doing something neat (laughs) yeah Um, so i really liked that one um you shared this story earlier today but my deep dive into why it is that more local chefs don't appreciate spam when it is from here
1: great piece Uh (laughs) (laughs) which um by the way uh careful readers will note you wrote 2,000 words about spam, but I don't think disclosed your own relationship and personal preference of spam.
0: Do you like I, spam? Do you I need am it? a spam fan. Okay. But I'm a cool. late in life spam fan. Um, yeah. I will add that I grew up in Pennsylvania, which means that we ate like pork roll and scrapple. So I'm like well versed in like kind of weird meat byproducts and (laughs) and it's a very
1: niche area (laughs) although i I was really surprised to learn that 17 million households and specifically like in other countries um, i was
0: really shocked by that too and just the fact that it's like becoming more and more popular over time like the last several years have been record-breaking one after the other like never would have known that until we started reporting the story.
1: <laughs> okay, we're we are deep down the spam rabbit hole now, but uh and I, I had this question for later, but will the Racket International budget allow for you to go to Spam Jam, the Hawaiian <laughs> Spam Festival or to send a local freelancer to cover it because Man, I Man, it I'd would really be like great to see that.
0: You know, another really successful story from our first year was um the writer Ian Ringenberg went to uh Winnipeg. He had had like a A viral tweet about how it's weird that Winnipeg is like eight hours north of us and we just never talk about it. It's like this huge metro area that no one thinks of. Um, And that was a really fun report and people really read the heck out of it. So maybe a report from Spam Jam is in order.
1: (laughs) I'm just that that's my pitch to you. Uh, You know how it goes. I'm happy to to do it if you need someone to. (laughs) Um, What about, I mean, uh, so we're talking about relatively lighter funnier topics right Mm -hmm. now but you also I think a lot of readers first came to you um uh for the the great NPR investigative piece uh we talk a little bit about that one and also like how yeah how do you think in your head of the mix of spam manifesto (laughs)
0: um
1: chicken rotisserie (sighs) competition and then like (sighs) workplace deep investigative piece you know like that I think All those things sit on RacketMN.com or whatever your website is. Uh, Yeah, how do you think about that mix?
0: Yeah, Um, well, the NPR investigation specifically was one of those things where like every once in a while it feels like there's a story that everyone is kind of talking about but that no one is reporting on. And we just kept noticing all these really high-profile departures from NPR. And it was like one after another where it was – it just seemed like – a really rapid, uh, exodus from, from the station and from the company and, you know, pairing that with things like them shutting down really successful investigative journalism programs. Like it just all seemed to us like it was painting a picture of, you know, maybe a media environment that was not super healthy or, or super, um, yeah, like maybe things just weren't going so great behind the scenes. And so, uh, my colleague Jay spoke to, I think around a dozen current and former NPR employees to just kind of paint this picture for people of like, what is going on behind the scenes here? Like, what are we not seeing that's, yeah. that's causing this t- exodus of talent? That's, that's causing the shutdown of these popular programs. Um, and that, you know, again, I think that's a story that probably a lot of other publications in town aren't going to touch right? either because they have, you know, personal connections with NPR or you know because they just don't don't want to get into it it's messy yeah, it's a messy yeah. story um, but that one also did huge numbers for us and i think is one that we're really proud of in you know for that exact reason and that it kind yeah. of challenges the narrative of this like robust nonprofit you know commercial uh, radio station and says like you know they have problems like a lot of other organizations do and they're yeah. they're struggling with them In terms of how it all fits together, that's a great question. Um, The way that we kind of think about it is it's not like a super um, well thought out formula. It's more like, okay, we've had a lot of silly stuff lately. We need to do some serious stuff. And vice versa, you know, if we've had a couple weeks in a row where we've had very serious features or stories, we're like, okay, we can like goof a little bit here in the coming weeks. Um, But it all kind of is happening at the same time. You know, we're typically reporting a handful of stories simultaneously. So, you know, you kind of you try to juggle it all, keep all the silly and serious balls in the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, um, on behalf of the Racket Readers Association, keep keep it all (laughs) coming, all of it. Um good, good. how I'm curious. The the if I understand right the model of of ownership, there's four of you that are that describe yourselves as co-owners and co-editors, is that right? Yeah, sure. And how do you make decisions when four people I mean I, I know there's a thing now, right? Like like uh reader and writer-own media, right? How how does it work? Like you all must get along pretty well and have great trust and respect for one another. But even so, even in the best of terms Mm -hmm. and everyone gets along great in terms of setting strategy and making decisions and running stories and paying freelancers. Yeah. Like
0: how's that work? That's probably the thing that's been like both most interesting to navigate. And also it's been, I mean, surprisingly knocking on wood here, it's gone very well so far. Um, But when we set up the company, we didn't know, like, okay, so we do this four-person ownership structure, everyone just takes, you know, 25%, we'll all make the same amount of money, Uh, we'll all theoretically have the same amount of say-so and the same amount of responsibility. Um, It's a complicated thing. We have a weekly meeting where we discuss any things that are like, this is a little bit beyond, like, my scope. Like, you know, we all have kind of our little, like, buckets that we're managing and then We'll have a weekly meeting where we discuss pitches and ideas and then also like, you know, I have this thought. What do we think about this? We've been really lucky that so far we've kind of all aligned on things at least enough that we can yeah. stomach it if it's something that we're like, well, I'm not super gung-ho about this. But, you know, if you three all feel really strongly that this is, you know, the story to pursue or this is the yeah way that we should be focusing our efforts moving forward. Like no one has gotten to a point where they're like, well, I'm going to blow this up over this or whatever else. And we haven't hmm. gotten into too many positions either where it's like two against two, which would theoretically come up at some point and we'll yeah uh, cross that bridge when we get to it. But
1: <laughs> let the readers uh,
0: decide on those ones. Just yeah, put it exactly. Out. Just Yeah, exactly. Put a Twitter poll. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah, I think, you know, we all have a really similar experience, um, just in terms of like having spent a lot of time in alternative media. And we have a lot of experience in journalism in general, like Jessica worked at City Pages, uh, my coworker Jessica Armbruster for like 20 years. So yeah. that's a lot of time and experience. She has seen a lot of stuff go down for better and worse at City Pages. And I think, you know, our driving principle at this point is like, how do we make the best publication that we can make with the resources that we have for the readers who have given us their time and money. Like, and when you think about things from that standpoint, if that's like kind of the, the leading idea behind everything, I feel like you end up on the same page a lot just by virtue of like, well, this seems like it's the best thing for the health of the publication, or it's the most interesting thing for the reader. It, it kind of solves itself a lot of the times.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I've got 4,000 more questions to ask you, but I want (laughs) to be really mindful and respectful of your time today. I've got a couple more and then a rapid fire round that I think could be kind of fun. Cool. Um, If I wrote you a blank check to go and Mm -hmm. tell a story, what story do you think you'd go and tell? doesn't have to be for Racket. I I know you have a, a great freelance career as well. Um, but what story would you go and tell and What format would you tell it in? It doesn't have to be print.
0: It's a really fun question. Well, I can say for sure that the way I would approach it would be in print or the digital equivalent of print. Um, sure. I'm, I'm a written word person I don't do great with video and audio. <laughs> so I think it would definitely be print in terms of the story that I would want to tell something that we don't get a huge, amount of opportunity to do with racket just by nature of the fact that our staff is very small and we're all based in the twin cities is like to do a ton of exploring beyond the confines of the twin cities. Mm. Um, so like something like the spam story, like even, you know, driving an hour and a half outside yeah. of the city to go visit the spam museum is like something that, you know, I had to do on a weekend and then you take all that time and everything else and you end up doing a lot of stuff after hours. Um, I think I would love to be able to tell more interesting stories from beyond, like, the Twin Cities specifically. Like, what do the food and drink – I often, as you know, edit food and drink for right for yeah. to the day. So, like, what are the food and drink scenes like in some other smaller towns or the suburbs yeah. or, like – you know, places like I feel like we do a pretty good job of covering food and drink here in the Twin Cities. I would love to do some kind of like big tour of the state that took more of like an all-encompassing look at what's yeah. going on out there. <laughs> you should just
1: um hire that TikTok food guy because I feel like he goes yeah. everywhere. Right? He I feel does. like he could <laughs> he could do that in a heartbeat. Um, I love that yeah. answer though. That makes a lot of sense. I would love that. Um, Okay. Have you read? By chance, Ben Smith's book *Traffic*. I have um, not. Okay, no worries. It's um, Ben Smith, uh, former editor in chief of BuzzFeed News. Sure. for Listeners and for everyone else, currently um, founding editor at Semaphore. I just finished that book recently, and so I've been thinking a lot about just like like that book. Basically, follows Gawker and BuzzFeed mm-hmm. um, from inception, kind of through to now, or like whenever he finished writing the book, and. And then when you you sort of get to the end of it and then add sort of the past year of media layoffs um, and BuzzFeed News itself shutting down and Vice and all these sort of like really well-known digital media brands from let's call it the past decade plus that, um, that haven't survived. And some of that I think we found from stupid money, low interest rates and crazy valuations and all sorts of things. But I don't know. It leaves me... On the whole, feeling a little bit bleak about digital media, generally. That yes. said, um, not to put you know the weight of journalism and democracy on your shoulders, but there are sort of smaller, uh, local, and oftentimes you know like defectors and local. But there are there are other versions of how to build a modern, sustainable media company and to build a career in digital media. I'm just curious as you think about kind of your you know, life in journalism thus far, and also journey from um, an Alt Weekly, eventually owned by an established brand to now owning Racket. I don't know, how, like, how do you feel about the state of digital media, I guess is the question I'm really trying to ask you.
0: Yeah, um, I think like a lot of people, it it does feel very bleak right now. And I yeah. do feel very concerned about the state of media both like in on a national scale, like with the big layoffs at some of those big publications, and also, like probably in a more dire sense on a local scale, with like Gannett buying up tiny newsrooms and then slicing yeah. them down to one or two reporters and then maybe shutting them down entirely. Um I think the whole thing paints a very, very grim portrait. Um, and i I don't know what the answer is necessarily i feel like i feel like the real answer is like legislation that would stop gannett from doing something like that or like like it needs to be bigger than just like every time a newsroom shuts down three or four people with the time and energy are like okay we'll start a new thing like there there has to be something more there um i do find it very heartening to see publications like ours and like defector and like The Baltimore Beat is an amazing one in Baltimore. Um, You know, there's the Colorado Sun, which same kind of deal in Colorado. Like, there are a lot of places where newsrooms have shut down and really wonderful things have cropped up in their absence. Um, But in terms of, you know, how sustainable that is for the future, I don't know. Um, I want to believe that more and more people could do it if they knew that it could be done. And we are like... If anyone who listens to this is like, oh, I've always wondered about that. And maybe someone at Racket would tell me how they did it. We would love to like really walk you through the nitty gritty, like nuts and bolts yeah. stuff. We picked a ton of people's brains as we were getting this thing off the ground. Um, and we have happily answered questions from other people who've been interested yeah. in doing it since.
1: Um, I mean, almost almost two years in, do you feel bullish on Racket's future?
0: Yeah, on Racket specifically, I feel great. Um, Good. We do an annual report, you know, like we did one last year. We'll do one this year where we kind of like take people through the subscription numbers and the traffic numbers, the advertising and how everything is going behind the scenes. And we release it in July. So soon. Um, So I just started pulling some sort of preliminary Mm. numbers and stuff for that. And it's it's looking really good. I mean, we're still making a living. All of the numbers are going in the right direction. (laughs) Good. Glad to hear that. So, yeah, it's. I mean, I feel very confident. Um, you know, one thing that I think I I just feel very strongly that um, these publications can exist and they don't need to be things that make like a huge profit for some billionaire somewhere, right? Like Tom Lay, a defector again, gave a big, you know, they just had a big feature in the Columbia Journalism Review and a yeah. point that he made – That I thought was really good and very salient and very much relatable to us was like you know we aren't trying to do like a barstool sports and get bought by a big media group for like a couple hundred million dollars yeah uh it's more akin to like the neighborhood bar where like we just need to be there and to keep the lights on we don't need to be turning huge profits we don't need to be looking good on paper for some eventual buyer yeah, We need to keep doing good things for our community and continue existing for our readers and supporters and contributors. And that's really it. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, in that in that respect, I think the simplicity is really beautiful, right? Like it, it's it's. Yeah. It's actually getting back to the basics of just business, right? Like we just want to keep going. Uh, none yeah. of us are looking to get filthy rich off of it. And nope. and that's all we're asking for. We don't need to invent metrics to look good to a VC. Nope. We're like <laughs> Right? Like we care about like one to two metrics or whatever, right? That are that are really important to us and subscribers is one of them.
0: Yeah. That's great. It's great. And it feels nice to be able to be the person or the people who are in control of that. Like we, yeah. we don't have... You know a business guy who's asking us questions about well why did you invest x and y in this and why did you spend this amount on this like at the end of the day we just have to answer to ourselves and to our readers and if we feel good about you know what we're doing and what we're publishing and what we've been spending i feel good about that
1: that's pretty cool um can I keep you for two more minutes to yeah, get through the yeah, rapid go for it. fire? Yeah, I have to yeah.
0: what I've got this afternoon, so okay, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> wonderful.
1: Um, all right, let's move into the rapid fire then, and then I will let you go and get back to writing, reporting, and editing. Um, first question is, have you tried Borg?
0: I have not tried Borg, and you know what? We talked about what if we hosted a Racket Borg party. is <laughs> a good I still, idea. I feel like Just- sometime this summer we might try to make that happen yeah so, i really want a borg and i've yeah. already got my borg name picked out i want it to be charlotte Borg. okay So
1: i love that you heard it here <laughs> first folks that's some breaking news
0: um uh love that i have not tried borg
1: but um definitely intrigued yeah uh, i mean i think if
0: you're an adult person it's it's probably there are very few opportunities to bring a borg um definitely yeah kind of thing that would maybe instill some concern in your friends (laughs) and loved ones so (laughs) but if racket hosts a party then it's fine right That's yeah
1: it it like puts a whole veneer on it that makes sense um why do you love vhs
0: um i started collecting vhs tapes when i was just out of college it was like a fun thing to do on a weekend to like bike around to a bunch of thrift stores and like record shops and just grab tapes we had one of those like hulking old televisions that still had a built-in vhs player and so that's how we spent i mean again in terms of like being a broke young person in boston like you really can't get more bang for your buck than like buying a vhs tape for 99 cents and then watching it with your friends (laughs) Um, So so it started just that way and then i don't know i've really i've come to be very nostalgic about it um I love sitting down and watching the previews and seeing what was coming soon to own hmm. on video and DVD. And I just feel like they're almost like a little time capsule of a very yeah. specific moment. And I yeah, I we just watched over the weekend uh, some friends and I Dirty Work, the Norm Macdonald classic on hmm. VHS, And I just it's it just feels like that's the way that movie is supposed to be viewed.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, you're you're inspiring me to think about my own media uh, collection habits. Um, have you continued to live your life free of Amazon Prime since you uh, first no. reported on it?
0: I did it really well. You, huh? like, I did really well for a really long time. Yeah. But Speaking of like media diets, I feel like Prime Video has some of the best stuff. Yeah. And so I I don't get a lot of stuff delivered to my house. Like I very rarely order something on Amazon. Yeah. But I, I watch Amazon prime a lot.
1: For, (laughs) for (laughs) listeners who have no idea why I'm asking some of these questions, I feel like a lot of context (laughs) is needed, but, um, and wrote a great piece a few years back about like, if you wanted to break up with Amazon and Amazon Mm -hmm. prime, some other ways that you could do that. Um, yeah, that's one of those things that I, I've, I will be honest, I have never given it up, despite many wonderful sure. people and examples in my life, like giving me good reasons why I shouldn't. And it's, uh, it's just so damn convenient.
0: I know. But, and that's, um, it's really hard to argue with. Like, yeah. I get it. I even when I wrote that story, I was trying to be very careful about like, this is not a judgment of you if you do use it like there. It's totally it's so easy. You can get so much stuff. And especially if you like don't have a car or you have like a job and a family like there are a yeah. ton of reasons that using Amazon Prime can make your life so much easier. It's just like if you wanted to use it less. Totally. Here, right. are some tips. And also there. like regulation
1: could be a thing to make that company a lot better totally. just saying. Again.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: just just <laughs> saying if any uh, legislators are listening. Yep. Um <laughs> any idea who Taco
0: Mike is, the most popular racket commenter? I will not reveal his identity, but I will tell you that within the last several months I had drinks at the spot bar in st paul with taco mike wow i know it was a real off moment good any
1: (laughs) any details to reveal about taco mike anything that surprised you compared to his internet personality to his irl personality
0: Let's think about this. Uh, there were things revealed that we already sort of knew from his commenting persona. So, like, we knew he was a Northsider. Sure. Um, knew he was a big movie guy. Uh, sure. We are actually letterboxed mutuals now. Wow. Um. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, he was really tall. That was the most surprising hmm. thing to me.
1: <laughs> interesting. Um, Taco Mike, if you're listening and have an interesting career and want to come on connection request, you are welcome to. <laughs> um okay you were of course the food editor at city pages and as you mentioned you still do a lot of that so i'm wondering mm-hmm. if we could uh get a few of your favorites and, and we it doesn't need to be your all-time favorite but just Fair. like some places that you're loving in the following categories are you ready absolutely pizza
0: um bricksworth mm. that's like a recency bias thing but i just you went just there a for piece their about little it square yep. pizzas, and i've been really into them lately yeah.
1: It is pretty good. Okay, how does Bricksworth, do you think, compare to, in my mind, the sort of equivalent which is Rectangle?
0: Rectangle. Yeah. Um, they're almost neck and neck for me. I will say there's no pizza at Bricksworth that I love quite as much as the shredder from Rectangle, which mm. is that like hot honey and yep. like yep. pickle and amazing pizza. I yep. just really, really like that one specifically. Yeah. But um I feel like across the board I was kind of like this is a fun new thing and I really like the brickford Pies and also in my own neighborhood I have to shout out Good Times Pizza which Mm. is a delight. Okay, wonderful. What about a coffee spot? Um... You know, I don't get coffee out nearly as much as I used to. I really like Wildflyer um mm. because I end up spending a lot of time on Mini Haha, either like buying books at Moon Palace or yeah. getting VHS tapes at Heroic Goods and Games. So I'm at Wildflyer kind of a lot. Um, I think another favorite coffee shop is probably just the standard like um Yeah, I yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't no, really but, have
0: another more favorite one.
1: That's okay. Uh, <laughs> close listeners of this show will note my love for SK Coffee, so I'll go ahead and plug oh, well, them. Sure. Uh, you can listen to Sam on an earlier episode. He the
0: they just opened in, what, Uptown?
1: <laughs> yes, they, their Oops. second location, which, I, as a St. Paul native, um, I feel a little bit jealous that Minneapolis <laughs> now gets to experience them too, but it's okay and good
0: for them. No, can't have everything. <laughs> uh, cocktails? um okay several thoughts about this i really for like a fancy little night i really like the emerald lounge in st
1: paul here here
0: that is such a fun little spot i feel like the food is really great um but the cocktails specifically to me are a lot of fun yeah and kind of weird
1: really great na cocktails there too Mm -hmm. i'll say like really well thought out yeah. and stuff
0: i have been a huge fan of that spot it's become like my favorite little like treat spot yeah yeah <laughs> uh
1: love it what about uh like a restaurant for a date night
0: hmm for a date night well what kind of date are we trying to have is like a first yeah. date like a
1: uh no couple who's been together a while couple and they want to go while. like sort of splurge night i don't know
0: okay if we're doing a splurge night, I really like All Saints in Northeast, hmm. which is like they do a lot of wood fired stuff, like really good vegetable cooking. And it's like feels like a little bit elevated. Like it's definitely approaching like a fine dining kind of atmosphere. But the prices are really good and you can sure. order a bunch of stuff and just kind of share it. We've done like a lot of like friends birthdays there for like a group of four. Yeah. Um,
1: okay, really like all cool. And what about. Uh, So we're still in sort of food and beverage generally just like an underrated spot right like people aren't talking about it enough writing about it enough i don't know
0: yeah that's funny we did a story last year that was like the 12 most underrated bars yeah And that was a great piece I, that was a lot of fun but it did get me thinking that we should do the same thing for restaurants and i've kind mm. of like been mulling that idea over like what are the mm. most underrated restaurants in the twin cities and it's tough because i feel like a lot of them are appropriately rated (laughs) like sure i'm trying to think of the ones where i'm like man that place really deserves more credit a lot of them fall into kind of the dive bar like neighborhood bar category yeah i I wish i could think of one that's like how about this listeners
1: will just need to subscribe To Racket and or a free newsletter to make sure they get your answer.
0: Our eventual forthcoming story.
1: He's either underrated (laughs) or appropriately rated. That would be kind of funny too.
0: (laughs) Perfectly mediocre places. Yeah, like what's what's just fine. Yeah, (laughs) that's really funny.
1: Okay, and finally a round of this or that. Are you ready? Don't Mm -hmm. think too hard. Okay, Prince or Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Editor or writer. Writer mats are five eight mats printer digital digital minneapolis or saint paul
0: minneapolis i'm so yeah
1: that's fair we can still be friends and city pages or racket
0: (laughs) gotta go for racket
1: i mean i figured uh (laughs) m uh where can folks find out more about you if they want to and follow your journey from here so
0: if you want to follow me, I am Bike Trouble on most social media platforms. I would encourage you to check out RacketMN.com if you want to read what I'm writing. That's R-A-C-K-E-T-M-N.com. Um, and you can also follow us on all of our social media. Those are listed there. We have a number of free newsletters that go out every week. You should subscribe to those. And uh, Yeah.
1: <laughs> cool. Well, M. Um, Castle, thanks so much for joining me today on Connection Request.
0: Thanks for having me, Joel.
1: That is it for today's episode of Connection Request. Please send me all feedback, questions, pitches, and takes on the end of succession and Ted Lasso to connect at shrugcontent.com. Today's show is, of course, produced by Shrug Content. We make podcasts, websites, and other internet related content. You can learn more at shrugcontent.com. And you can find me, Joel Lehman, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and the show on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next time, be well, and thanks for listening.